This is Jim Wallace for the Soul of the Nation. This podcast is coming to you from uh, the Sojourners Leadership Summit. We have this every year, 300 very, uh, to me, exciting and hopeful, mostly young leaders. It's by invitation only, those who are doing things around the country. And we're having a conversation tonight about a word. I want you to listen carefully to the word. And when you hear it, I want you to conjure up what it means to you, what it sounds like, how it feels, what you're afraid of. The word is evangelical. You say it again, evangelical. It does conjure up thoughts and feelings and associations. And we're going to talk about that tonight with people who know that word, know that history, know that tradition. And whether, in fact, this is a word and a tradition that needs to be reclaimed, renewed, or maybe rejected. That's a big conversation now going on in many places. And I've got some people tonight who are going to help us sort that out. Let me say just a few things to frame that, and then I want to introduce this incredible group of people who I want to hear from this, this evening. The first time this word is in the Bible, or the origins of the word, was in the words of Jesus at what I call his Nazareth Manifesto, his opening gig, his mission statement. Right after the wilderness time, he came to Nazareth, and he announced what I would say is his mission statement. Quoting from Isaiah, In Luke 4, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now that phrase, good news to the poor, In the original Aramaic, the language Jesus spoke, good news was evangel. The evangel was the good news, from which we get the words evangelical, evangelicalism. Evangel meant good news to the poor, and good news. Now, that's not the first word that comes to my mind when I hear the word evangelical today. So we want to talk about that in this conversation. Talk about that notion of the evangel as good news and what evangelicalism has come to be. There's a president of an evangelical seminary who I won't name tonight, but who recently told me Evangelicalism is destroying the evangel. What does that mean? So we've got some people tonight that I want to ask these questions of, and I want you to hear from them. We've got Dr. Barbara Williams Skinner. She's the, she leads the Skinner Leadership Institute. She's the convener of, I think, the largest African-American clergy network in the country. She's been uh, part of and, and next to and angry at 
the evangelical tradition for a long time and has, has some very important words to say about that. We've got Reverend Alexia Salvatierra, who's from Southern California. She teaches at Fuller Seminary, lots of evangelical institutions, but she's an organizer. I like to call her the godmother of the organizers, and that's the role she plays in California, and she's one of the leaders of a new movement called the Matthew 25 Movement, which is very evangelical in the good news sense, so we'll hear from her about that. Then we have Nikki Toyama Sito, who is the executive director of, now get ready, the Evangelicals for Social Action. Started by Ron Sider many years ago, she's the new generation leader there, and she tells me she's struggling with their name, what it means, whether to keep it or change it. And Wes Granberg-Michelson, he is, he is uh, Emeritus General Secretary of the Reformed Church in America, and he's the author of some of the best new books out on how the church is changing around the world. He's become, he's traveled around the world. He knows the global church very well. And this issue looks and feels differently in the global south church than it does here in America. He'll tell us about that. So there are some big questions that we're going to answer tonight. One of them is this. How do we deal with those of us who are from the evangelical tradition or went to an evangelical school or a church that calls themselves evangelical, we're wrestling, really wrestling, with questions like these. How do we deal with the astonishment of evangelicals around the world, and that's the right word, astonishment, at what is happening in America with white evangelical support for Donald Trump? Second, how do we deal with the deep and painful racial division and sense of betrayal from evangelicals of color that Trump's use of racial bigotry was not and seems still is not a deal breaker for the majority of white evangelicals? How do we deal with that? And third, why has Donald Trump received such strident and vocal support from certain white evangelicals that goes beyond just pragmatic policy agreements, but has descended into unfettered and uncritical adulation for a man whose life, I will just say, has been consistently and unapologetically morally corrupt. And as Morning Joe the other day said, policies which, which conflict with the Beatitudes virtually every day. That was on Morning Joe. How does that support for those policies and that leadership that are antithetical to the gospel of Christ, how does that risk losing a whole new generation of young people? These are big questions. So tonight we're going to deal with them. So I want to ask Barbara, who is deeply rooted in the black churches, but knows the evangelical tradition, has been a spokesperson within it for a long time, often felt uncomfortable, because when the media says evangelical, what they really are saying is white evangelical. And how does that feel to a woman of color in that evangelical tradition when you hear the word evangelical? I hear Luke 4.18. I don't hear the nonsense that we are calling evangelicalism. 
I hear, I hear good news versus politics or politicizing mm -hmm. of the cross. That's what I hear. And so much of the, uh, it's felt so interesting that in the, uh, the African-American church tradition, even during enslavement, African-Americans found a way to claim the cross and reject racism. I think that's what we still have to do. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. So you can't, otherwise you lose your mind. Mm -hmm. And we're not planning to do that. <laughs> okay. I, me I remember a phone call after the election where evangelicals were discussing uh, this, uh, this iconic figure now of 81% of white evangelicals right. voting for Donald Trump. And I remember one of the uh, white evangelicals said, no, no, we didn't vote for Donald Trump because of his racial bigotry. It was because of other things, other reasons. And you said prophetically on that call, so I guess racial bigotry just wasn't a deal breaker for you. Yeah. See, the, the real issue is that racism did not begin with Donald Trump. Right. It began with America. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And so once we understand that we can love this country, we can claim its flag and salute it and not go on our knees, okay, uh, we can do all of that and still have to deal with the reality that, that inherent in America is the buying of human bodies. And the psychic damage from that we've never healed from. So, so the trumpets of racism changed. It's George Wallace one time, it's Bull Connor another time, and now it's Donald Trump. They change, but the, the systemic issues that came out of the selling of human bodies, black bodies, that hasn't changed. And it's damaged both white people and black people. Mm -hmm. So the issue is that we, it's so easy to look at a man who's, I think, out of his mind, uh, this president, and obsess on his craziness every day. And we're forgetting the, the policies that he's putting in place right now on immigration and other areas. So I choose not, just like we tripped on Richard Nixon, we tripped on other leaders. I choose not to focus so much on this person and focus on the policies that are hurting our people. Mm -hmm. A number of us, uh, the first morning, went to the African American Museum of History and Culture. Mm -hmm. and on that first floor, we watched and listened to the video and read the documentation of young children being stripped from their mothers on the auction block mm. as the foundation to the American economy which is what's happening with immigrant children at the border right now. And today, we just got the news yeah. that um, Jeff Sessions of the Department of Justice and Sarah Huckabee Sanders speaking for the president called the policy of separating children biblical law enforcement. Mm. And so from that beginning of American history to what was said today, in this country about what it means to be biblical. This is the conversation we're having t tonight. Now, Nikki, uh, knowing Ron Sider for years and working with ESA, Evangelics for Social Action, a uh, number of us were, th were really thrilled that, that you are the new leader because Thank of you. all you Absolutely. bring Thank to you. that. Thanks. But one of the first conversations we had about that was you said the organization, the board, 
your constituents are struggling with the name. Yes. This name, Evangelicals for Social Action. Yes. What's that struggle about? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's really interesting. Uh, there's some folks who sort of like the name because they feel like inherent, isn't it? Is this sort of like provocative combination of things, evangelical and social action, which uh, maybe is surprising to some that mm -hmm. those two go together. But I think those of us who do a close reading of the Bible sort of like, of course, yes, that's how that goes. But um, I think one of the things that's challenging, it's an organization that's, you know, in its 40s. And when the organization was started, right, um, at, at the beginning with the Chicago Declaration for Evangelical Social Concern, um, the word evangelical and who was an evangelical was really different. And then over these last 40, 45 years, there's just been a real change of who it is who self-identifies as evangelical. I think there's a little bit of, been a shift in kind of uh, in a conservative direction as fundamentalists has been like, you know what? We used to define ourselves against evangelicalism, but now we're going to come under that umbrella. So there's just been a real change in the conversation. And I think as an organization, if you want to look at us as kind of a case study, we're really wrestling with what does that mean? And, and to be quite honest, what's the invitation to God in this time and place? So... Since you raised that Chicago Declaration of Evangelical Social Concern, let me say a word about that here historically, because it frames our context. Sojourners began in, um, in 1971. Uh, we were out of an evangelical seminary, and we committed ourselves to the personal and social gospel to transform our lives and the world. Then in 1973, Ron Sider, and we were helpful with him, convened this group in Chicago. And Wes was there. I was there. Uh, uh, Bill Pinnell, good friend of yours. John and Perkins. your husband, Tom Skinner, and John <laughs> yeah. Perkins were all there. And we talked about what's at stake now. And, and, uh, and hanging out at the YMCA. At the Wabash Hotel at the YMCA. <laughs> yeah, it was... Uh, it was a luxurious place. Yes, that's that right. We, that we <laughs> appropriate. And, uh, appropriate. Appropriate. It was indeed. Uh, mm. and, and here's what that declaration said 45 years ago. Just a couple lines. We acknowledge that God requires love. We have not demonstrated the love of God to those suffering social abuses. We acknowledge that God requires justice. We have not proclaimed or demonstrated justice to an unjust American society. Although the Lord calls us to defend the social and economic rights of the poor and oppressed, we have mostly remained silent. We deplore the historic involvement of the church in America with racism and the conspicuous responsibility of the evangelical community for perpetuating the personal attitudes and institutional structures that divide the body of Christ along color lines. It goes on to talk about the misplaced trust of a nation in economic and military might. Hmm. Uh, it acknowledges that we have encouraged men to prideful domination and women to irresponsible passivity. We must resist the temptation to make the nation and its institutions the objects of near religious loyalty. 45 years ago, evangelicals were saying this. They were young evangelicals, evangelicals of color, the first evangelical feminists on the scene, and some established white evangelical leaders who met with us and together all of us signed this declaration. As Wes recall, it got a lot of attention in the press. It got a lot of attention at the time, Jim, because uh, evangelical as a term was not even known 
in the secular media. Mm. That it, wow. was, uh, it, it was a word you kind of knew if you were part of this community, like a secret handshake, hmm. you know. And, and it was only as this developed that evangelical began more to become more broadly known in the culture. And then when Jimmy Carter was elected and he said he was bored again, suddenly you'll remember we had Ken Woodward from Newswork coming, Newsweek coming to our office saying what's an evangelical because he was going to write a cover story about it. No kidding. Yeah. Um, so what, what we have to understand is that from that time when the word evangelical was not defined until today, Politics in the media have now defined it. And in the public sphere, evangelical is defined as bad news, mm-hmm. not as good news. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what happened? What happened is politics happened. Mm-hmm. There wasn't a conservative theological conference going back on the things we'd said about racism and poverty and sexism. It was, in fact, a political assault and takeover engineered by far-right Republican operatives who targeted white evangelicals. Now, this isn't hyperbole. Richard Vigory, who is the primary person, has told me all about this. Mm -hmm. They approached Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and they said, give us your mailing lists and we'll make you household names in America. Richard Vigory was the Google internet guy of his time, meaning the top direct mail guru in the country. And for 10 years, 1970 to 1980, there were young evangelicals and women and people of color doing a new evangelicalism for 10 years that was a positive story. And all the coverage said so. But then in came these operatives, and they literally targeted and took over the white evangelical world by appealing to what they called conservative social issues. And from then on, we at Sojourners, West was there, were known as the alternative to the religious right. It was a political takeover, and the people who did it, Paul Weirich, Terry Dolan, uh, uh, they, they, they've talked about this mm-hmm. pridefully. Now, as um, a young scholar, who, uh, Lydia Bean, said at a meeting we had just a few weeks ago, the far right doesn't even need religious figures anymore to reach their evangelical targets. As Fox News has captured the white evangelical audience and can reach them directly now, or as megachurch pastors tell me, I only have my people for an hour and a half a week. Fox News has them 24-7. Something has happened in politics and the media that has changed our whole notion of what it means to be evangelical. Now, Alexia, um, you, uh, you're a Lutheran pastor. Yes, although I call and, myself Luther Costal. And she, <laughs> but at some point you came out as an evangelical. Yes, yes, yes. Luther, I became a Christian Luther. in the Jesus movement, so that's right. <laughs> and so you're in Southern California, and you're leading this wonderful movement, the Matthew 25 Southern California movement. And somehow the gospel that you are preaching uh, is becoming good news again to people who need to be set free. And part of that, though, is who defines evangelical? 
That's right. When it's defined by white evangelical and white evangelical men, it's kind of different than when Hispanic evangelicals or black evangelicals or Asian American evangelicals redefine the conversation. So what's, what's the good news out there and how did that happen? So it started actually, Jim, as you know, because you were part of it, started in January of 2017. We started a national network to protect and defend the vulnerable in the name and spirit of Jesus. And we started it intentionally as a bipartisan Christian network because I had been involved, I have been involved with engaging the evangelical church in the issue of immigration now for about 20 years. And I knew that there were people on the other side of the line who um, had been caught up in something but could be brought back and that we could be united. And we formed it as a national movement, and then we realized that we didn't actually know in this new historical moment how to protect and defend the vulnerable, and we wanted to do more than just say it. So we really decided, a few of us who live in Southern California, that we would try to make it real on the ground in Southern California. And we have. We have about 200 churches involved, most of us self-confessed evangelical. Uh, Half of us, about half of us are Latino. The other half are Latinx. The other half are white, mostly white, but some African-American, some Asian, multicultural churches. And we have mega churches. We have storefront churches. And we are very intentionally a partnership between immigrant and non-immigrant congregations bridged by millennial, bilingual, bicultural young people that we call puentes. And we come together across these lines. We come together across political lines. We come together across immigrant, non-immigrant, racial and cultural lines because we stand on the same sacred ground of our evangelical faith in Jesus. So, yeah, for us on the ground, um, this is real. This is what motivates us. This is what sustains us. And I was thinking, Jim, as you know, when you and I were talking a little earlier, that there, the evangelical movement in Latin America is powerful. It's growing. Guatemala is over half evangelical. Mm-hmm. And we don't have the same history. Now, we have our own issues. I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that this is all sweetness and light, but it's not the same story. Mm. Uh, and when I think about being evangelica, I think about in Latin America, when they ask you if you're evangelical, they don't ask you if you're evangelical. They ask you if you're a brother or sister, mm. if you're an hermano or hermana, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's because what this is all about, this movement in Latin America is familia. Familia con Cristo, familia en Cristo, you know, family with Christ in Christ. Mm. And so, you know, I feel like uh, those of us who are rooted in that spiritual tradition, you know, we have the right to define ourselves. Mm-hmm. And we do define ourselves as, as evangelico, evangelica. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't relate to the same story that you've told. Right. So who defines what it means? Right. It's a very important question here. Now, Wes, your new book, The Future of Faith, you all should read The Future of Faith, because it's about how the global church is defining things differently than the bubble of the white American evangelical churches. Uh, how does this, these language, these words, evangelical, Pentecostal, what does that mean in Latin America, as Alexia is saying, but also Africa and Asia? Well, it's a very different reality, Jim, um, and you appropriately 
talk about the bubble. We, we're having this discussion about whether evangelicalism is a brand we can keep or not in, in a complete bubble and in a primarily white bubble. And it really is the problem, the main problem of Christianity in the United States, especially of evangelicalism, that it's encapsulated in this parochial white bubble, which we think is at the center of the universe. And in effect, this bubble is bursting. It's not the center of the Christian world anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Holy Spirit is busting it apart. The only question is whether we will recognize that or not. When Donald Trump was inaugurated, this very day he was inaugurated, a group of evangelical missiologists from around the world issued a statement called a call for biblical faithfulness in the midst of new fascism. This was the language of global evangelicals on the day of Donald Trump's inauguration. Every time when I travel abroad and I meet with uh, other Christians, their first question to me is not, it's not how could this be happening in your country with Donald Trump. It's what is happening with the church Mm. in your country. Mm. Mm. Why is it that we hear no words contrary? And why is it that we see these evangelicals that seem allied with Donald Trump? It is bewildering to them. Um, You you, um, referred today to the statement by uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders and Jeff Sessions about how the Bible uh, sanctions the separation of uh, families. Um, I put a note on that on Facebook, and there was a friend of mine who's from Turkey who's now in campus ministry. He read that note, and he simply said, huh? <laughs> that, I mean, that's the way most of the global church reacts to what's going on. Mm-hmm. And so the discussion around the term evangelical, as well as Pentecostal, um, really takes place within a different framework. That's, that's not to say that there isn't, um, that there aren't tensions within those expressions of the church and that there aren't other global discussions, but our discussion is within a bubble, and we may think we will solve it for ourselves, but meanwhile, the global community, the global Christian community, is going to go on and have their own discussion and come to their own definition. Mm-hmm. And their discussion and definition has the possibility of changing our discussion. Yeah. I mean, Wes, I I agree with you about how culturally bound this conversation is. And I would also say I was in South Asia just a couple weeks after the election. I was shocked to hear the um, church leaders who are on the ground and in the trenches from the from those communities parroting back to me the talking points that I had seen evangelical leaders. I was mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. also shocked. Mm-hmm. So I, I I'm with you on yes, there yeah. is a little bit of a uh, parochialism of, of the conversation we're having, but I think with the different interconnectedness in the social media, and I would say some of the way these uh, these comments go out from these people who are perceived as inheriting church statesmanship, that they're they're also absorbed. Anyways, it's, it's a little bit. It was a little bit bizarre to me mm-hmm. to have the same conversation over a breakfast table that I was having with some of my relatives who live in the Midwest. Right. You know, and, right. and but in two totally different country contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was the same talking points and the same data that was coming back at me, and I was like, wow. Yeah. When West talked about the bubble that white uh, evangelism is in, there are two real uh, dangers that people tend to miss that we really should name. One is diversity 
the country is becoming browner and browner yes. uh, in the midst of white racism. And, and to say white racism doesn't mean white people are racist. I mean, there's a systemic racism. And I would dare say that if you're not fighting against it, you are complicit. Mm-hmm. Okay, number one. Mm-hmm. And I think the, 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 other, the other issue, um, uh, frankly, is that the world is just getting s- smaller. You know, we're more, as she said, more connected. So you walk, the world is brown. Okay, and so if you look at the American map right now, 20, uh, where we are now, 2018, 2020, it, it, there's spots of brown and, and orange, as it, you call it, across, and it's largely white, okay? In 2060, it's totally the reverse. And the question is whether the church is equipping white Americans who are, who are like one out of five children born today are white, I mean, that's just a reality. So the question is, how long will this nonsense continue? Mm-hmm. At some point, somebody has to wake up and say, I'm, I'm asking, where are the white people going? I don't know where they're going. But I know that's a reality. That demography, that it's changed. The demographics are changing this democracy. And the church is not prepared to lead that. You often talk about that as the political elephant in the room. Yes that's underneath all of our policy discussions, uh, race, immigration, policing, mass incarceration, so many things, voter suppression. Uh, and so there are forces at work that strategically are trying to prevent changing demography from changing democracy. That's a deliberate strategy right. that they're undertaking. Now, are the churches aligned with that? strategy, or are we the ones helping this country navigate itself to no longer being uh, a majority white nation to being a majority of minorities? The church could have this amazing role of helping to navigate that very different kind of future instead of going along with people who literally said today that the separation of children from their parents is biblical. Alexia. I just wanted to throw in that um, in M25, which is what we call it actually because mm-hmm. it's Matthew 25, Matteo 25, that in M25, we are constantly intentional about what we call justice in the process, hmm. which is directly linked with 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to be the body of Christ? In verse 24, it says you have to give more honor to those who've lacked it. So in all of our processes and all of our structures, we try to practice being the body of Christ. And in the process, uh, it's not easy for our, our white people. And it's actually not easy for any of us. This is a hard shift to make. Mm-hmm. But it's a profoundly biblical shift, you know, unlike um, Jeff Sessions calling uh, the separation of families is biblical. This actually is biblical mm. to try to do justice in the process. And, mm. and it's exciting. I mean, it's really hard. Again, I'm just saying that again because it is. But it's also mm-hmm. really beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it leads to amazing things. Like that text also says that we're, the body of Christ mm-hmm. is supposed to suffer when part of the body suffers. Yes. We're supposed to suffer with that part of the body. Right. So if our immigrant, the stranger is suffering, undocumented body of Christ people, or every black parent in America is even more afraid of their kids walking out the door in the morning, Mm -hmm. 
to go to school or take a trip to be around men with guns. Where is the white body of Christ suffering or even acknowledging the suffering of the black and brown body of Christ? So th these are biblical issues for us, as you're saying, not just political ones. But then things happen, like when there's a pastor, Pentecostal, who gets detained right. and yes. threatened right. to be deported. Right. It's just another sad story. What did the Matthew 25 movement do? <laughs> Woo! Uh, Jim. Uh, yeah, I just do want to say that um, we ended up having to, to build a national campaign around this Assemblies of God pastor. You know, we, there are three lines that you can stand on to immigrate to this country. We call them blood, sweat, and tears. Blood is family relationships. Sweat is an employer petitioning you. And tears are refugee or asylum status. So this pastor actually had all three. Hmm. But he had deportation orders from when he fled to this country when he was 13, 13 to 19. He had three deportation orders. So he was detained, um, and we ended up having to get our networks, denominational networks, across the country engaged before we were able to get him released. And that included Dr. George Wood, who is the head of the Assemblies of God. Yeah. He had had a very different position on immigration until he got to know the story, wow. and he got to know the Cadiz family, hmm. and um, he ended up storming into the White House, <laughs> and uh, and it was effective in the end. We were able to. He got set free. Yeah, he got set free. Wow. Jim, to your point about and Barbara about how the demographics is changing, just to. Uh, to put out there some of uh, Sung Chan Ra's work in the new evangelicalism, that as the demographics are changing, he's talking about how the church in America is actually going to precede that demographic mm -hmm. shift, that what our churches and our pews are going to look like, that's going to happen in our churches 10 years before it happens mm -hmm. along Main Street in America. So I do think that there's this incredible way that the church could try to reimagine how it is that we live life together as familia, Mm -hmm. and, and and to perhaps become a precursor to what is going to be true, just true for all Americans. But that's only possible if we have a we have an identity crisis mm -hmm. in America, mm -hmm. and the church has an identity crisis. Mm -hmm. We we have a black church, a brown, a red, a yellow, uh, whatever. Did I miss somebody? Church. Okay. So the Church of Christ is the body, the called out, the ecclesia. We don't. So we have so segmented ourselves that we, we have not clarified that those who are aligned with Christ are aligned with one another. You don't take applications to become my brother or sister mm -hmm. in Christ. Mm -hmm. But so when you say white Christians, are you talking about white or Christ? I'm not clear, Jim. Well, the question is whether in the word white, the phrase white evangelical, white Christian, is the operative word Christian or white? Mm -hmm. The operative word is white. And so white, I think white Christianity, that phrase, is literally an idolatry because false identities of whiteness, for example, identities of race and nation and gender and class become idolatries. And then we have a really an idolatry problem with the identity problem. And right. that's a theological issue. That's why the statement that a num number of us were involved in reclaiming Jesus said, the most important thing right now, when other identities have taken over American Christianity, especially white Christianity, 
It's time to make sure our identity as followers of Jesus is our clearest, most core, fundamental identity preceding all the others. So these elders who got together, well, I love this moment, they said, let's not call ourselves Christians in this declaration. Let's call ourselves followers of Christ, followers of Jesus, because the identity question you raise is fundamental to this, who we think we are. It also means, Jim, why we have to de-Americanize the gospel mm-hmm. right. and right. why that mm-hmm. is such an urgent issue. Mm-hmm. If what Barbara and what, what Nikki and what Alexia say is true, which it is, that's, that's our compelling call. And, mm-hmm. Jim, that brings us back to that statement that you first uh, referred to, the Chicago Declaration, because that talked about national idolatries. Yeah. You talked about de-Americanizing the gospel when you started Sojourners. And so at some point you have to say, what happened? And I think what happened is that when the religious right started in 1980, as you describe, the response of the rest of the evangelical community was to say, well, we don't want the gospel to be political. It's just personal. Mm. And they retreated into the gospel is just about me and Jesus. And they retreated back into the original evangelical heresy. Instead of understanding that, no, the gospel's not partisan. The gospel doesn't put out a, a, a narrow political agenda, but the gospel of Jesus Christ has a political and social and economic impact. It did then and it does now. We retreated from that in the 1980s, and we're only, why are we... Why in the world, you know, when you and I worked against the war in 1970, we had a go-around trying to convince people that Romans 13 didn't mean that we were justified in dropping napalm on Vietnam. Hmm. Wow. You know, and so you'd think we would have learned something. You know, now we're saying Romans 13 doesn't justify separating vulnerable families at the border. Well, what's, we, we haven't taught the kind of biblical strength and formation that, 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 that we really believe in that separates out the, these idolatries and puts first things first. It's been, you know, you say, why did 81% of evangelicals vote for Donald Trump? It's a failure, a massive failure of Christian formation, a massive failure of discipleship. And I think part of that failure came because we didn't, we didn't want to be like the political right. And instead we just said, oh, well, let's just keep the gospel personal. And you can never keep the gospel just personal. Well, can, can I tell such a question? Like, I feel like at some point it seemed like the, the litmus test of a faithful Christian or evangelical became, what do you think about abortion? Maybe prayer in school. Mm-hmm. And then in the recent age, what do you think about gay marriage? Like, when did those become the litmus test that sort of says, are you in or are you out? Are you with us or are you against it's us? It's a great question, Nick. And I'll tell you, when the gay marriage question became the litmus test, it was in 2003 when the religious rights fortunes were beginning to fade and some of the same people whom Jim mentioned, Gary Bauer and Jim Dotson and Richard Land, met together in Arlington, Virginia, and they said, what are we going to do? Our mailing lists are going down. I mean, this, this is, I'm not making this up. You read it in Francis Fitzgerald's book on evangelicals. You read it in good evangelical historians. And they said, we've got to find a new issue. Their new issue was the Defense of Marriage Act. And they said, if we make this the issue, we'll be able to regain our strength. They did. 
It helped reelect George Bush. And the reason why same-sex marriage became a litmus test in the church is not because of some careful biblical cultural discernment. It was because of the political manipulation Mm -hmm. of those GOP operatives. I want to say something else Mm -hmm. about all of this. Um, And it, it connects to what you were saying earlier, Nikki, about the way in which colonialism impacts mm-hmm. all of us, yes. you know, and and also what you said earlier, Jim, about pastors have their congregations an hour and a half on Sunday, and then what happens the rest of the week? Is that part of what happens in M25 that I think works on multiple levels is that it's deep discipleship, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that right. it's right. that it's not um, superficial, that it's really how do we share life together. Mm. You know, for most um, Latinx folks, we don't fit neatly into either party mm-hmm. because um, and I, I say this a little bit um, tongue in cheek, but there's a real deep truth to it, which is that babies are God for us. Mm-hmm. Children are divine. Mm. I mean, children are incredibly holy and precious and sacred. So abortion is a hard one for us. It really is culturally. You know, I've, I've had people in churches say, you know, if one of our girls gets pregnant and she doesn't want the baby, I'll take the baby. You know, we'll care for it. I mean, so, so it's not, I don't think this is simple, but I do think that the answer is that kind of deep sharing of life together that then changes the way that we see the world and changes what we're willing to sacrifice, what it means to carry the cross. So um, I think that uh, it's a real temptation in a world that moves as fast as ours to take shortcuts. I don't think there are shortcuts for the healing of the church and the redemption of the evangelical Hmm. movement. Somebody said today, one of these wonderful young leaders, many of whom are here tonight listening to this conversation, so often I feel politically homeless, Hmm. she said, that neither party, left or right, really uh, speaks the gospel or genuine, holistic biblical faith that Wes, you're talking about, so I feel homeless. And so uh, the parties, politics, want to use us and abuse us. And that's true, as Barbara knows well, on both sides of the aisle, right? Mm-hmm. So how do, we, how, how do we evaluate our public life by reclaiming Jesus? And, uh, you know, I have been astonished that so many people around the country have watched that video about elders speaking about the need to reclaim Jesus mm-hmm. because it's like going back to Jesus. In every crisis, Christians do well to go back to Jesus again and ask, okay, what did he mean? What would he say to what's going on right now? That's a conversation I would love that churches to have. Michael Curry, who was part of what we did, who was uh, unknown to the world until he preached a royal wedding sermon. <laughs> <laughs> and then the gospel was preached to the largest global audience in history. Uh, at our retreat, after that, he said, you know, Jesus is a problem that many Christians want to avoid. <laughs> and I think that's often the case. Um, you keep asking, how, how do you uh, restore yeah. the true meaning of the evangelical, the good news 
of Jesus from Luke 4.18. And I think Dr. Martin Luther King really gave us uh, an example. You know, when he talked about the beloved community, it's very easy to get very cynical and say, but look at the chaos, look at where we are. But if you don't give people the light to look toward, the darkness will overcome it. Mm. The beauty, I mean, I'm so proud to be been one of the elders and part of shaping Reclaiming Jesus because it is lifting up Hmm. what it means in those 2,000 verses of scriptures to be, have a preferential concern for the poor, mm-hmm. to look at the person on the side of the road who's mm-hmm. been marginalized. That that's the standard. And I think the danger and the problem of not getting, uh, the problem why we're not getting there faster is the silence. I'm actually less afraid of the extremist on the, on the right than I am of the silent coward sitting, watching the agony of the mother and child being separated or the black man at Starbucks um, being disenfranchised and and jail. I think that is more dangerous Mm -hmm. every day. It's the silence of the church. And I think if I have a prayer, it, it, it is that that our church would wake up and see that all it takes for good uh, for evil to thrive is that good people do nothing. Mm. And so mm-hmm. reclaiming Jesus was a way the night that we were out there with those candlelights, the fact that all of the people standing outside were just coming up to us saying, thank you. Where were we? We were at the White House oh, that's saying, funny. thank you. <laughs> candlelights to the White House. They're like, we took, this is our house. You know, we're going to go take a candlelight to our house and say what it really should stand for. But people were, with mothers with babies coming up to all of us saying, thank you. Why were they saying thank you? Because they are, they are pained at the silence. Hmm. And they know this is not the best America can be. Hmm. I think uh, Barbara's so right. And uh, I think we have to be honest and say, that uh, during these last two years, it's been the silence of the mainstream, moderate, white, evangelical men that has been deafening. We have not heard, with very few exceptions, their voices standing out. And when you say, Jim, uh, what do we do about this whole debate around the word evangelical? Um, I'm much more inclined to let that play out as Alexia says, different communities are going to define this in their own ways, and they're going to have their own agency to do so. But I think we need to do three things for, mm-hmm. and for all of us. Um, I mean, the, the first thing we, we have to do is, is to really learn how to be listening to non-American, non-white voices. Mm-hmm. We've got to listen to the other voices of the world church that are there that have so much to say to us. If, if we're really going to de-Americanize the gospel and, and, and see the, full, the fullness of it. And then secondly, we've got to go deep into our understanding of Christian formation and discipleship. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have to recognize that's, that's what we've been, that, that's where we've lost, that's what we have to recover. And then third, we've got to take those concrete actions of solidarity. We've got to exhibit the solidarity that Jesus would have us exhibit towards those who are most vulnerable. We do those three things, and then let the rhetoric and let the definition sort themselves out. Mm-hmm. Well, can I, can I toss in there something, just as someone who is bearing a, a disproportionate amount of letting the rhetoric play out, I think the other thing that I might add is we need to approach Jesus as a Jewish man. There are too many ways that we have neutered Jesus Mm -hmm. and scrubbed him of any culture and just made him in our own image. 
But I think we need to look at Jesus as an as incarnated in a specific time and place and understand because yeah. it's actually far more powerful than it is to scrub Jesus of that. And there's something for me that is an invitation for me as an Asian American woman yeah. where I can interact with a Jewish man. That you know that I, I think there's a sort of a way we've sort of scrubbed and taken all of this stuff off and sort of said, We're all the same. All right. We all have the same blood. Right. You mean a Palestinian Jewish brown skin rabbi? That's exactly. Yeah. Okay. If you had to say that. Yes. So uh, this has been a great conversation. It's interesting, Nikki, and and I know that Sojourners and ESA are planning a 45th anniversary of the Chicago Declaration. That all the people at this table are going to be grabbed for, and it's going to be those people who signed the original declaration who are still alive and able to get to Chicago again with a whole new generation of young evangelicals who will be majority people of color and majority women. And that conversation will probably redefine evangelical in a different way, even a couple months before the election. I want to thank all of you for being here. This is a conversation that's going to go on and get deeper and deeper, but it's a good conversation to have. I want to read one more time what Jesus thought about this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news, the evangel, to the poor. This is Jim Wallace for the soul of the nation. God bless you.